Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K, where together we can reimagine GI care. Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski, and we're going to open the show as we always do, by reminding you that the goal of this series is to present you a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but sometimes outside of GI as well. To close out 2020, we're doing a special year in review episode of The Scope. We'll be looking back upon conversations we've had with all of our guests this year and share some of their insights with you. We've got a lot to get through, so let's get started. Our first guest was Lily Brillstein, the CEO of Be Collaborative. She spent years working at health plans, pioneering new value-based care partnerships and episode of care models to ensure that we can move beyond the fee-for-service world. Throughout her career, she's come to understand that negotiations between payers and practices are most successful when all involved players show respect for each other's expertise, something that isn't always the case. One of my goals and one of the things I think that helps to make these models successful um, and that really they can't be successful without it is a respectful partnership. And that's not something we've had a lot of in this industry um, over time. And so I, I talked to payers about um, making sure, well, I talked to all the parties about, you know, uh, the goal of sort of leveraging the expertise of each of the partners and respecting the fact that the different partners and parties bring a different set of uh, expertise to the table. And so with the providers, certainly their expertise is in the clinical care of their patients. And with uh, payers, they have the longitudinal view and data uh, of what's been happening to those patients outside of the physician's office that can enable them and help them identify where there are variations in care and cost of care. But I, I tell them both, you know, I, when I talk to payers, I suggest that it's really important to listen to the providers and not go in with an idea of what success will look like before we talk to the providers to see clinically what, what does success look like? How do we know we're successful here? And I talk to the providers about making sure they understand that not everything that might make really great clinical sense is easily administered or administrable by the plans. And so as they contemplate these models, that they need to be able to listen to one another and figure out a model that's clinically meaningful and also can be administered by the plans. Both of those things really have to be there and be in place for, for things to be successful. And I find that that shift in thinking is actually tough for a lot of players because they're, you know, we're so um, accustomed to contracting in, uh, in healthcare with our dukes up and everybody's sort of fighting. And this requires that everybody takes their, their fists down, does not go in and start with no, and, um, and consider what actually is meaningful and what can they actually, you know, sort of lift off. In April, I spoke with Harold Miller, the CEO of the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform. At the time of our conversation, COVID-19 was in full force, and there were very few answers on how we all would be able to move forward as a society. I asked Harold, who is a nationally recognized expert on healthcare payment and delivery reform, his thoughts on how payers and practices 
would regroup post-pandemic. People simply try to bring back what was there before rather than actually taking the time and effort to be able to rethink it. And oftentimes the disaster rebuilding needs to occur so quickly that people simply go by the playbook they know. And I think that one of the challenges I think we will face in, in the post-pandemic rebuilding is whether people simply try to get back as quickly as possible to the old way of doing things or whether it becomes an opportunity to be able to do things differently. I think the fact that some of these different payment models and delivery model approaches um, have been developed provides a potential blueprint for doing some things differently. But I think it starts with people recognizing that part of the reason we had a problem during the pandemic was because of the way we paid before. And I'm not sure yet that a lot of people recognize that. They see it as a temporary severe problem. We need to provide loans or grants to be able to get, get past it, and then we'll go back to the way things were before, rather than recognizing that the reason why hospitals and physician practices are having such difficulty now is because there was no funding, stable funding, to sustain the core capacity, and so much of their funding was dependent on elective procedures, which then disappeared in the middle of the pandemic and that there wasn't any way to support the surge capacity that was needed during the pandemic. So rather than simply saying, okay, that's gone now, now we can go back to the way things were before, hopefully we will recognize that problems existed that led us to have those things be worse than they would have been otherwise and that we should try to fix them. But I think that's gonna take a lot of education. I think it's gonna take a lot of advocacy by uh, physicians and hospitals who do see uh, what should be done differently um, in order to make sure that we actually do make that transition. My next guest was Dr. Leanne Metcalf, who is a Vice President of Enterprise Data and Analytics at Pathway Vet Alliance. I partnered with Dr. Metcalf on several value-based research projects when she was working at Healthcare Service Corporation and was interested to hear her thoughts on the impact of her research on high beta chronic conditions like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. People in general who are dealing with chronic conditions, we always talk about care management programs, weight management programs, programs that are supposed to help somebody manage their condition. What the high beta process showed us was that there were some um, conditions had a huge variability in terms of outcomes and cost and that helps us to direct services to those things that have that high variability because now we understand which conditions respond better to management and um, being well under control and which are just really expensive conditions where no matter what you do you'll just be really expensive maybe the drugs are really expensive but for other conditions where you see those flare-ups and you end up in the ER, you end up in an inpatient setting, we're able to direct services that way. So you don't have so many care management programs that don't show results, but a small number of care management programs directed at improving someone's quality of life, reducing their financial burden, um, reducing the number of times they're in the ER in an inpatient setting, and just living a better life um, again, because we're focused on those programs where we can make that difference. In June, I chatted with Dr. Joel Brill, 
the Chief Medical Officer of Predictive Health. By this point, we were three months into COVID and it had become painfully obvious that many gastroenterology practices were failing to adequately adapt to the pandemic. Dr. Brill discussed the specific struggles that GI practices were and unfortunately still are enduring. I think that um, our colleagues know that pandemic really brought um, gastroenterology to a screeching halt. For many of us in um, non-academic clinical practice settings where much of our day-to-day -day work really was focused around endoscopic procedures, um, you know, endoscopy dried up. Um, elective procedures um, were canceled because of state mandates, lack of protective, you know, um, equipment, PPE, um, and like, and um, it's, it, it really created a tremendous um, series of waves to practices because it wasn't just that your endoscopy reimbursement went away, it was all the ancillaries. It was the you know, the ASC facility fee, the pathology, the anesthesia, the prep, all of that cratered along with, you know, you know, with, with stopping scoping. Now, mind you, you know, practices pivoted. Um, clearly, people who are doing um, interventional work, um, ERCP, stents, things of that nature in the hospital setting, the need for that did not go away. That had to continue. Um, patients who had IBD, who needed infusions, that continued. But, um, you know, but elective GI, just, you know, I think the AMA's numbers are that it decreased by close to 85, 90%. And we've seen some other external data sources now coming from large, you know, data gathering organizations that, you know, say the same, you know, have the same message from a, you know, you know, from an analytic perspective. So practices pivoted. Um, some of them, you know, were able, you know, I think were able to embrace telemedicine, some more successfully than others. Um, practices got, you know, hurt though. Um, staffs were furloughed, um, physicians income, um, you know, was, was acutely affected by this. And then behind all this is the fact that if unemployment rates, you know, approached 15, 20% plus, um, how much of gastroenterology was elective versus how much of it was essential. In the middle of the summer, I spoke with Lee McGrath, who is the Senior Vice President of Provider Strategy and Solutions at Premira Blue Cross in Washington State previously the Senior Director of Value-Based Contracts of Blue Cross Blue Shield, Illinois, and formerly the President of Illinois Health Partners, Lee has a distinctive perspective on provider-patient relationships. She relayed how that perspective helps her empathize with both sides of the table. I think it's so important to be able to um, walk in the shoes of both sides of um, really complex problems in order to deeply understand, have empathy, and really know what the issues look like from the other side. There's so many folks I find, 
you know, on both the payer and the provider who are, you know, competing of quote, who has it worse or who has it the hardest or who should get paid for what or who should get credit for what. And, uh, you know, it, it almost doesn't matter the the objectives and the goals are all the same, which is to make the healthcare, um, to make the communities um, healthier um, and happier and uh, to really um, solve the healthcare crisis that exists right now. Um, and I, I'm, I'm really proud, I'm really excited, I really feel good about the fact that I've been able to see both sides of the problem and can have deep empathy for both the payer side and the provider side um, as we try to um, remap the entire healthcare system. In August, I had two guests join the scope, Barry Tanner, the chairman of Physicians Endoscopy, and Dr. Michael Weinstein, CEO and president of Capital Digestive Care. Barry and Michael's organizations entered a strategic partnership in 2019, forming a management platform for independent GI groups seeking an alternative to acquisition. On our show, Barry discussed what he wants the lasting impact of their work to be. If we have helped create a GI practice that people coming out of fellowship say, I want to be part of that because, and there's a very clear one or two or three bullet points. It's because there's opportunity to do what I've trained to do, to practice medicine. There's opportunity for leadership uh, within an organization. There's opportunity to do re clinical research if that's what I want to do. And there is, there is the scale of the organization is such that I don't have to worry about access to capital. We have the we have the, the human resources and benefits of a large, let's say, healthcare uh, system organization that I wouldn't have as a smaller practice, but as a larger aggregated practice. So I think it's being able to bring the benefits of scale and still and and offer the types of things that I think young physicians today are interested in what they were training for, and also to protect their independent voice. Because I think, I don't, I don't want to skip over that too lightly, because I think there is, to me, it's not so subtle, but there's at least a subtle difference between employment, um, and which I'm not trying to put down, but an employed physician and an independent physician in terms of how much they're willing to exercise their voice in the change of healthcare. And I feel very strongly that independent physicians, their voice is the one that's gonna improve healthcare over the next five to 10 years. And that voice needs to be protected. And I think having a job is great. Um, being an employee is great. But I think no matter how you try to slice it, I think your ability to contribute, your willingness to contribute as an employee declines versus as an independent practitioner. Heading into the home stretch of the year, I had the great opportunity to sit down with Christina Ritter, the Director of Patient Care Models Group at CMMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovations. Christina and her team are dedicated to reducing costs improving quality, and transforming the specialty space of healthcare. We talked about her experience working on bundled payment models, improving how data is distributed to practices and participants, and creating a more efficiently incentivized system to get all players on the same page.
Christina emphasized that transforming how people think about payment and care in the specialty space is one, if not the most crucial aspect of her role. I have to say, while we are always trying to put the patient first, a lot of times my thinking is about what is the physician experiencing? What is the institution experiencing? How are they thinking about the care that they bring every day? And I think the bundles models have really been tremendous in helping people think differently about the care that they're giving. And the whole point behind the value models is um, I think um, several of our directors have said, we're trying to get everyone to row in the same direction. With the fee-for-service system, a lot of times everyone's not rowing in the same direction, right? So how do you change the financial incentives? So like it's for team care and it's for the hospital and the physician to go in the same direction and everybody feels an incentive to get to the right outcome for the patient and the patient understands what's going on and can get to the right outcome. And so what I like about the bundles model is it's big in scope. It was a behemoth when it went underway. Um, we're at 38 different um, clinical episodes in the model. And um, it has touched a lot of different institutions, physicians, and patients. It's an episode model. It was designed to transform oncology care. And I would say, again, one of the biggest successes we would claim out of the model, putting aside, we've learned a lot about pricing and savings and other things, but that its goal of whole practice transformation is something that it has really achieved in so many ways. Um, practices will anecdotally tell us, you know, they have just completely changed how they deliver care. And for all intents and purposes, it's a, um, it's a six month episode of chemotherapy that um, it initiates with the, for a medical oncologist and a patient at the time that chemotherapy initiates. And then it, um, a, a payment, a upfront payment is made in the case of OCM. This is not true in the um, BPCI models and in other mm -hmm. bundles models, but in the case of OCM, um, we make this upfront payment that's um, then assessed on the back end. So, um, and uh, it's called a MEOS payment right now. Um, it's an enhanced oncology services payment. And um, each practice collects it for each beneficiary per beneficiary per month after the initiation of chemotherapy for six months. And then at the end of six months, we sort of assess all of the total cost of care. And then we determine whether or not a practice was able to earn a performance-based payment or not. When OCM started, it was in uh, just one-sided risk. But over the course of the model, the practices either have to earn performance-based payments or ultimately move into two-sided risk. And so um, it is in the process now of moving into two-sided risk. Um, the model's been extended one more year. So we have another year. I think we go through 2022 right now because of um, the, a lot of the recently the um, uh, agency put out some COVID flexibilities for all of the models. Um, this is a difficult time, obviously, for everybody to be practicing. And so there was an attempt to try and extend models or not make a ton of changes to models while we're sort of in the middle of, of the pandemic in, in many cases. So um, it was extended for one more year. Um, overall, our initial um, evaluation results have shown gross savings uh, for the model, but not necessarily net savings so far. So with the MEOS payments, the practices haven't um, yet achieved overall savings. 
Um, so the claims data has savings, but that extra money we're sort of right, giving up front right. to the practice. We haven't shown net savings yet, but we do see a lot of good movement in the right direction. And, you know, it takes time for practices it to does. transform. It takes a lot of time. My penultimate guest of 2020 was patient advocate Lily Stairs, the founder and principal of Patient Authentic, which helps healthcare companies authentically engage with patients to drive meaningful business outcomes, brand awareness, and product adoption. Lily herself lives with three chronic illnesses, including Crohn's disease, and her experiences as a patient inspired her to dedicate her career to empowering patients. Everything I work on, I want to empower patients in some capacity. And I have one project that I worked on in particular with uh, Clara Health, the company that connects patients to clinical trials. I developed their Breakthrough Crew, an ambassador program that um, helps raise awareness about the power of research and trials. And I had a patient who told me that the program had given her purpose. And that was incredibly meaningful to me because that patient has experienced so much darkness and this has been a source of light for her. Don't settle. There is so much happening in innovation in the world of biotech and pharma. We are pushing for new medications and there is a lot of hope. And so don't just accept a treatment plan if it's not fully working for you. Keep pushing for more and better. You know yourself best, and so it's so important that you advocate for yourself and that you ask questions and that you do your own research and you bring that to your position. Um, you know, we should always be challenging the status quo. And I think that as patients, we also have this sense of, you know, the doctor's in charge and I need to listen to the doctor. And Yes, your doctor has a lot of knowledge, but it should be a shared decision-making process. You should be actively involved and engaged and, and supporting those decisions. To wrap up 2020, I was joined by Dr. John Allen, the Chief Clinical Officer of the University of Michigan Medical Group. Dr. Allen and I discussed some of the issues facing American GI societies today, and he shared his thoughts on how those societies can build a solid foundation for the future. Value-based care is, first of all, based on science, right? It's based on business efficiency and science. I think if the societies really focused on, you know, what are the best business models? What are the true outcomes that we can show um, from patient satisfaction to getting back to your employment to um, pointing out the tremendous um, disparities that we have among races and economic levels and really focusing on the science and presenting that in a way that makes business in sustainable sense. That, that's a, a, an incredibly valuable thing that nobody else is gonna do, right? I mean, the societies are stepping up and they really are stepping up to point out the, the vast healthcare injustice that we have in this country and the disparities and how do we get around that? They, they are the source of the microbiome registry, for example, or other initiatives like that. And certainly, you know, we're not going to be practicing medicine like we are now, you know, five years from now. And the reason we're not is because science is going to move and the societies need to, you know, step up and really push how important the education is, how important the research is, how important the science is um, to get us where we need to go. I mean, 
look at COVID, for example. Can you imagine the speed of developing a vaccine, of you know mapping the genome of the COVID virus, and all of those things happening, you know, ten years ago? I mean, it, it's just mind-boggling what we've been able to do, and to to take CRISPR, for example, and you know package that in a little, you know, thing the size of a, a deck of cards to identify rapidly whether you have COVID or not is is absolutely mind-boggling. So. The societies, academic medicine, you know, that's where we need to push the envelope to really keep this going. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck in the, you know, the, doing the same thing we're doing today. And I, I just hope that doesn't happen. As we head into the new year facing unprecedented challenges, we also have hope that we can soon put the chaos and turmoil of the past 10 months behind us. Here on The Scope with Dr. K, we look forward to bringing on more interesting and innovative thought leaders in 2021 and sharing our conversations with you. We appreciate your listenership. Thanks as always to our audience for tuning in. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at hashtag HCNowRadio. And now be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Have a happy and safe new year. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. K. Tune in with me next time to reimagine the scope of GI care. If we build it, they will join.